Let's just pray. Father, we just want to thank you for all that we've seen this morning. New life in salvation, new life in natural birth, and we commit it to you. We thank you for the privilege of being some small part of that. But now, Lord, we turn to your word, for ultimately it's the guide. It's the way you direct our lives. And I pray you would give me clarity of mind and thought and bless us as we look again at this important subject of finance and possessions. In Jesus' name and for his glory only. Amen. 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 Okay, so I've entitled this message this morning, <laughs> Your Money or Your Life. <laughs> Let me start with a little story. <clears throat> when you go to a doctor for your annual checkup, he or she will begin to poke around and prod in various places, all the time asking you, does this hurt? How about this? If you cry out in pain, one of two things has happened. Either the doctor has pushed too hard without the right sensitivity, or more likely there's something wrong and the doctor will say, we'd better do some tests. It's not supposed to hurt there. So it is when preachers speak on financial responsibility and certain members cry out to yourselves in discomfort, criticising the message and the messenger. Either the pastor has pushed too hard or perhaps there's something wrong. In which case, my friend, we're in need of the great physician because it's not supposed to hurt. I've entitled this Your Money or Your Life not because it's a joke. It really is serious how we handle our finances. The subject is too important and the wrong lifestyle that we adopt will seriously hinder our effectiveness for God and accomplishing all the purposes he may have for us. In Matthew 6, Jesus said this, he said, No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. There is no middle ground. The subject is so important to Jesus that did you know 15% of the words recorded that he spoke relate to money? 16 of his 38 parables relate to money. There are 2,300 verses in the New Testament that are money related compared to 500 on prayer and 500 on faith approximately. Guys, this is an important subject. And I want to look at three aspects, or maybe four, we'll see, probably three, to keep us from the love of money. I want to address the issue that we're stewards, not owners. I want to look at the consequences of loving money. And then I want to look at how do I make sure I don't love money. The Bible teaches us that we are stewards, not owners. In Psalm 24, the psalmist writes, The earth is the Lord, Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. 
he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. We own nothing. In Deuteronomy 8, when God speaks to Moses, he says, You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And then David says in 1 Chronicles 24, he says, But who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give so generously as this? He goes on to say, Everything comes from you, and you have given, and we have given, only what has come from your hand. You see, your intellect, your business sense, your skills, your talents, your creativity, Everything we have that we use to work and earn money and possessions is actually God-given. He owns it all. He owns my home. He owns my TV. He owns my laptop. And everything I will ever own in the future, actually everything I will ever steward in the future, he owns. There's nothing I can claim is mine, or has come through my works. It's all because of God and what he's provided for me. So we must see ourselves as stewards, not owners. Because with stewardship comes responsibility. Ownership, you can do what you like. But stewardship is very different. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells this parable. Again, it would be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained, gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of the servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you're a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown, and gathering where you've not sc scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever ever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have, will be taken from them, and throw that worthless servant outside, 
into the darkness where there be weeping and gnashing of teeth. With stewardship comes accountability. And as stewards, we're expected to use all that God has placed in our hands and in our mind for his purposes and glory. The servants with the five and the two talents, please note, were commended equally. So it's not about how much. It's never about quantity. It's always about proportion. The third servant failed miserably. He saw himself as an owner. He had no concern about using what God had provided him with for anyone but himself. And our stewardship not only brings responsibility to act appropriately, but it actually has eternal consequences. Because stewardship makes us accountable as well. There was a reckoning between the servants and the master. The master returned and said, okay, what have you done with everything I gave you? And Paul warns us of this in 1 Corinthians 3, that how we need to be careful how we build our lives, how we live our lives, because at the end of those days, when Jesus returns, there will be a reckoning. There will be a time we give an account. And all our motives that we've maybe tried to hide will indeed be brought to light. So it's not only a matter of how much I give or how much I keep, but it's everything. This whole subject is far broader than the money in our pockets or in our bank accounts. We're talking about how do I handle my time? How do I handle the words I use? The love I give, the priorities I live to, everything is from God and we're stewards of it. And so we must live as those who are responsible and be aware that one day we'll be accountable. The Bible gives us many consequences of loving money. But let's look at a few of them. Money is not a neutral influence. It will either master you or you will master it. As I said earlier, there is no middle ground for us. In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul writes to the church in Corinth about a gift that he's asking the churches to give into. Because the believers in Jerusalem are suffering and need help. And he says this in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 9. He says, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now we cannot avoid that verse because the context is clearly about money about giving. And Paul warns us that how we handle our money, the generosity we have with our money, is relative to what we, re we receive. But also, 
What we receive through generosity is not only and not always monetary. Paul goes on in that passage to talk about how we reap a harvest of righteousness. That we will be made rich in every way. What we gain through being generous and living as stewards is broader than just money. But like a trusted servant is given more responsibility, so is the generous sower. And this is where I personally find what we call prosperity teachers abuse scripture. For Paul continues in that passage. In verse 11 he says, you will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. God blesses the generous giver so that they can be more generous. Not to buy a plane or a boat or a 20 mansioned house. But he blesses our generosity so that we can be more generous. For those who cannot part with their money, or are mean with their possessions, or hoard, will not enjoy this grace from God, nor will they see their harvest enlarged. They will find themselves serving money, being anxious about money, Never contented with money. Never having enough. Jesus put it even more simply in Luke 6. He says, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Just stop and ask yourself, do I want God to bless me with the same measure that I have been a blessing to others? Now obviously God goes beyond, but do I really want my blessings received to be a reflection of how I have blessed others? Not just monetary, but in all ways. The most obvious consequence of loving money is that it robs our love of God. Remember in Matthew 6, Jesus said, guys, it's one or the other. You can't love them both. You can't serve them both. It's God or money. And we know to love anything other than God is not neutral, it's not casual, it's idolatry. And idols hide in our hearts and whisper into our thoughts. Over the years, I've had many people who love money come to me and say, well, you know, I don't need to give money to I give in other ways. You heard that one? Oh, I'm fine. I heard this when you preached it two years ago. Or, I can't afford to give anything. Or, what would I do without the money, I need to pour, uh, store it away. You see, the thing is, the idol of money tells us to trust it. 
to pursue it, to hoard it. You need more. You see, it promises much, but actually delivers death. It robs us of our peace and indeed trusting God. Many years ago, I preached a similar message. And I said to people, okay, I'll tell you what. If you can't trust God with money, I promise you as your leader as I was at the time, that if you are generous with your money and God doesn't do his bit, I will will personally give you a check for the difference. You see what I'm saying right now? But some people actually found comfort in that, can you believe? Fortunately, I didn't withdraw that offer. But the principle was, oh, well, that's okay. If Jeff's going to pay the balance, that's fine. Because we don't trust God, but we trust Jeff. Ridiculous. Money tells us that it will serve us. But the truth is, we end up serving it. It hardens our hearts, and it turns our gaze from Jesus to himself. You see, money can buy you a bed, but it won't buy you sleep. It can buy you a book, but it won't buy you brains. It can buy you food, but not an appetite. It can buy you finery, but not beauty. It can buy you a house, but not a home. It can buy you amusements and entertainments, but not happiness. It can buy you a crucifix, but not a saviour. It can buy you a religion, but not salvation. It can buy you a good life, but not an eternal life. And it can buy you a passport to anywhere, but to heaven. That's what happens when we love money. It deceives us. The consequences are endless. And yet despite this, so many Christians and churches are robbed of the joy of giving generously and of using money for God's glory as faithful stewards. Some years ago I was asked to talk to church leaders because their churches struggled financially. And I'd sit them all down with the treasurer and I'd start by asking them, okay, what are you giving into the church personally? After we got over the shop and the horror, the trust treasurer obviously knew. And what I would find is that a church that struggles financially usually begins with the leaders of the church. You see, another consequence of loving money, if you aspire or you feel God's leading you into a position of responsibility and leadership, is you're not going to make it. If you cannot handle the most basic element of our lives with stewardship and responsibility and generosity, that being money, then dear friends, you're never going to handle spiritual responsibility and authority. Just remember, God promises to bless the generous in many ways, sometimes financially, but there are also consequences for the need. So how can I make sure I don't love money? Some years ago we had the privilege of baptising a chappy who'd come from a traditional church background, been in the church for 10 or 15 years. 
He did an Alpha course because his church didn't run it. And he was so angry. He was so angry that it was the first time he'd ever been told that going to church was not enough. He needed to make a personal decision to follow Christ. And so he was wonderfully saved. It was like after 15 years, now it all makes sense. And I remember sharing with him and asking him to give his testimony and talk. And I said to him, because we baptised him, and I said to him, what is it like being baptised? Expecting him to say some amazing, you know, spiritual, the, the doves and spirit fell on me, and all this. He said to me this. He said, when I got baptised, it was as though my wallet floated to the surface. Isn't that precious? Isn't that precious? Now, I'm not suggesting if you get a bee baptised, you put your wallet in the pocket. I suggest you deal with that before you go in the water. But it was a beautiful perfect illustration of exactly what it means to follow Jesus. Suddenly now, he owns everything. And I don't cling on to anything. So how can I make sure I don't love money? Let me read to you from 2 Corinthians 8. This is again this, the collection that Paul was referring to, that I mentioned earlier. Now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy, and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service of the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then, by the will of God, also to us. These believers gave beyond their ability, despite being amidst their own trials. And with great joy, they pleaded with the privilege to give. I think in 25 of leading churches, 25 years of leading churches. Well, in, no, two instances I, I can remember when somebody has pleaded with me to give. The first person was we were away at a conference and somebody rang me and said, oh, I missed the offering we did last Sunday. Will you put this in for me and I'll sort it out later? I thought, wow, that's integrity. And the other person was a lady on the, my very first preacher about finance and I was all nervous as you are when you're first starting off and all, we're going to talk about money. And in the, we used to have a coffee break in the middle and she came up to me before the message and she said, I haven't been in the church long, uh, but whilst I wasn't in the church, I've been putting my gift away. I'd like to give you £3,000. I've got to confess, you know what my first thought was? Oh, you could have waited till after the sermon. It would have been so much better. It was God saying, God saying to me, thanks Jeff, but really, I don't need to preach on it. Anyway. But it's such a privilege to be involved when somebody is passionate, urgently wanting to give. They pleaded to have the privilege to give. How could they do that amidst their extreme poverty, amidst their trial? Because the clue, the answer is in verse 5. They gave themselves first to the Lord. It's the same with all idols. Idols don't lose their appeal when we shout at them and stand and face them. 
Idols lose their appeal when we avert our gaze to something far more beautiful, something more valuable, something more precious. And that has to be the person of Jesus. So these guys, amidst all their difficulties, because they've given themselves first to the Lord, they were drawn to be generous. Giving a bit more money when you hear this kind of preach, and I'm not really asking for money, but giving a bit more money is not the solution. It's just a temporary conscience thing. Oh, we feel a bit better. Giving ourselves first to the Lord is a lifetime journey. Jesus taught, taught us in Matthew 6 that we overcome worry and anxiety by what? By seeking his kingdom first. Not by facing the problems, but by seeking his kingdom. It was great to hear Ade's testimony, wasn't it? In the midst of the anxiety, the tired going into hospital and labor. What does he do? He gives himself to God. Turns his attention to God. You see, we don't love money when we're putting his priorities before ours. That includes our time, our ambitions, our pleasures, our energies, and, of course, money. Dear friends, we serve and worship and are stewards of all that a generous God has provided us with. So generous is he that he leaves us speechless. He's given to you and I without measure, freely, his forgiveness, his grace, his love, his faithfulness. Which one of us has earned eternity? None of us. It's the free gift of God. And everything we've received is undeserved and unearned, unfailing and unlimited. And when we love him first, we want to live as he does be generous in all our ways. Can we be serious about putting him first in our lives and loving him first and seeking his kingdom if we are not generous in every way? So we recognize we're stewards, not owners of all we have. Does that mean we're to live in poverty? No, it doesn't. Does it mean that we don't enjoy the pleasures our possessions can bring? No, it really doesn't. But it does mean we need to live responsibly. We need to live knowing that one day we'll give an account for the decisions we've made. And also we need to live as stewards. We're aware of the consequences of not being generous with all we have. I want to know God's blessing in my life in every area and not be a worshipper of money. And to make sure I don't follow this idol, I give myself first to the Lord. I started by warning you that the way we use our money will determine the path of our life. You serve one or the other. I hope you can see the importance of loving God first 
and the natural fruit of doing so will be our increasing generosity in all things, but especially perhaps I didn't, in money. I used to always say to our young leaders, I'd say, if we ever go for a drink, if we ever go for a meal, I expect you guys to be first at the bar, offering to buy me. I never paid for a drink for 20 years. <laughs> but we should, it should be oozing out of us. And I tell you what, a generous person is known. You know, even now, if you can think of people who you have seen generosity exude. And dare I say, the flip side is true as well. How do I finish such a sermon as this? Certainly not by having, a, having an offering. Unless you urgently plead that <laughs> we're not having an offering. We finish by thanking our God and Father for his generous gift of Jesus Christ. We turn our gaze to him who died for me in my place, took the penalty for my sins, so that I might come into his abundant grace, his abundant love and faithfulness, so that I might turn my gaze to eternity with him, knowing that one day I'll stand before him and hopefully hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so the only way we can do that is to take the news together. To to the end. So, I'm going to let Duncan do that. So that's how we're going to close, by responding to the generosity of our amazing life.